Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard of a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Welcome to the Morbid Tourism Podcast, where we talk about cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and assault on children. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners, and listener discretion is advised. First off, I just wanted to apologize for some of the audio technical difficulties that were in the last two episodes. Uh, It is a one-woman show over here, and I forgot to turn on some of the settings. So lesson learned, uh, hopefully from here on out, All of the episodes will be uh, issue free, but thank you to those who reached out and let me know. Uh, I really appreciate it. Also, apologies, my voice is a little hoarse. I am uh, still getting over COVID, um, so if I sound a little bit different, but thank you for bearing with me and on to this week's case. In most developed countries, citizens have the freedom to practice whatever religion they believe in. It's a fundamental human right. At the same time, cults are often seen as dangerous organizations. So how would you differentiate a cult from a religion? Is it the ability to freely come and go from the religion as you want? Or is it a certain aspect of control that the cult has over a person that a religion doesn't? The definition for cult is pretty broad in itself, stating that a cult is, quote, a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. So really, the only thing that it takes to differentiate a cult from a religion is other people thinking it's odd. In the United States, you cannot be prosecuted for being a member or even a leader of a cult. You're perfectly within your First Amendment right to religion by participating in cults or even leading them. But over the years, cults have been targeted by law enforcement agencies who often find other laws that are broken by the cult in order to shut them down. And that is exactly what happened in the case of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. Since religions are often evolutions of prior beliefs and religions, this week's case is gonna start with a little bit of a religious history lesson. In 1929, a man named Victor Hotef claimed that he had received a message directly from God. Hotef had been a devout member of the Seventh-day Adventist religion, whose beliefs are somewhat similar to Christianity, and they come from the Bible. Hotef claimed that God wanted the Seventh-day Adventists to reform their church, mostly tightening the rules. Unfortunately for Hotef, the leaders of the Seventh-day Adventists didn't agree with what he was proposing, and Hotef eventually broke off and created a completely new sect of the religion, which included what he had been told to do by God. He called this new religion the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, 
which is a bit of a mouthful, so for short, they just called themselves the Davidians. The Davidian part is named for King David, who was one of the heroes of the Bible. For those of you who went to Sunday school, you probably remember the story of David and Goliath, where young David slayed a huge giant with only a stone and a slingshot. So that David went on to become a great king, and Jesus Christ is described as being a descendant of David. Victor Hotef created a headquarters for the Davidians in Waco, Texas. He called this headquarters the Mount Carmel Center, named after a mountain in Israel where there was once a great altar to God. The Davidians hoped to use this building to create their own great altar to God in Waco. After a little over 20 years as the leader of the Davidians, Victor Hotef died in 1955 and his wife Florence Hotef took over as the leader. She claimed, just like her husband, that she was a prophet, she could talk to God, and she knew that the apocalypse was coming in 1959. She and hundreds of followers gathered at the Mount Carmel Center to await the end of the world. But of course, the apocalypse didn't happen. Understandably, a lot of very devout people were upset and they didn't necessarily want to follow Florence anymore since she had proven herself to be a false prophet. One of these followers, a man named Benjamin Rodin, decided to make a new sect of the Davidians, which he called the Branch Davidians, named after the Bible verse Zechariah 3.8, which states, Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. So many of these really devout Davidians decided to switch to the branch Davidians, believing that it was the one true religion and that God had sent his servant, the branch. So many followers ended up switching that they actually took over the Mount Carmel Center from the original Davidians. Benjamin Rodin was the leader of the Branch Davidians until 1978 when he died and his wife and son took over leadership from there. Three years after his death, in 1981, a 22-year-old man named Vernon Howell joined the Branch Davidians at the Mount Carmel Center in Waco. Howell had had a rough childhood. He was born to a 14-year-old single mother, and she had had a string of really abusive relationships before finding the Seventh-day Adventist church that the Branch Davidians were based off of. Howell found school really difficult, possibly due to dyslexia, and he ended up dropping out of high school before he graduated. He joined the Seventh-day Adventist church just like his mother did, but he was actually ejected from the church after he pursued the pastor's underage daughter. At the Mount Carmel Center, though, Howe sang in the church choir and he played the guitar, and really, he was generally well-liked throughout the church. But it wasn't long until he started to make some waves. It's been speculated that he caught the eye of Lois Roden, the widow of Benjamin Roden, who was by then in her late 60s and was the leader of the church. Lois and Hal began sleeping together, and she allowed him to start preaching his own message to the Branch Davidians. Lois's son, George, 
was not too keen on the situation with Howell, and he could sense that many of the Branch Davidians were way more into Howell and wanting to follow Howell than himself, even though George Roden saw himself as the next leader because his father had founded the church. Tensions eased for a little bit when Howell stopped sleeping with Lois, and instead, he married a 14-year-old girl named Rachel Jones, which is so gross, but was legal in Texas with parental consent. But the power between George Roden and Vernon Howell was really just getting started. A very large and expensive building burnt down on the property, and George Roden was so upset after this building burnt down. You know, he had just lost a ton of money. They put so much work into this building, and he was convinced that Vernon Howell was responsible for this building burning down. George Roden forced Vernon Howell and 25 of Howell's followers off of the Mount Carmel property at gunpoint. Howell and the followers were forced to live in tents and vans, basically homeless, for the next two years. But George Roden was not a natural-born leader like Howell, and after his mother Lois died in 1986, many of the Branch Davidians sought out Vernon Howell as the true leader of their faith. In 1987, determined to prove Howell as a false prophet, George Roden challenged Howell to raise a body from the dead. He even went so far as to exhume a body that had been buried at the Mount Carmel Center and told Vernon Howell that if he could successfully resurrect the body, then he could be leader of the Branch Davidians. George Roden would put his hands up and walk away and completely hand over the church to Howell if he could raise this body. But Vernon Howell did not take the bait. He was a smart guy, and instead, he went to the police to report that Rodin had desecrated a corpse. Now, the claim was pretty fantastical. The local police department didn't really take it seriously. They were like, uh, we don't really believe you, but if you want to go get proof, like pictures, and bring it back, then okay, we might do something about it. So, Vernon Howell, along with several of his followers, stormed the Mount Carmel Center and was met by Rodin and his followers, who were heavily armed. They had a shootout. Luckily, no one was killed, but people on both sides of the gunfight were charged with attempted murder. Howell and his followers were eventually acquitted of the charges, while Rodin was detained for being in contempt of court. While Rodin was being detained, Howell took over as leader of the Branch Davidians, which was met with mostly positivity throughout Mount Carmel. To cement his position as leader, Vernon Howell legally changed his name to one that you might be more familiar with, David Koresh. He chose David as the same name as King David, for whom the Branch Davidians were named for, and Koresh because it's the Hebrew translation of Cyrus, and Cyrus was a biblical king who returned the Jews to Israel. Newly named Koresh believed that he was the modern version of Cyrus, and he was returning his followers to the promised land of Mount Carmel. As for George Roden, after he was released from jail on the contempt charge, he actually went on to murder a man named Wayman Dale Adair with an axe believing that Koresh had sent Adair to kill him. 
He spent most of the rest of his life in mental institutions and never again returned to Mount Carmel. So as leader, David Koresh claimed that he was a prophet sent by God and dictated how life should be for the Branch Davidians within Mount Carmel. He stated that as a prophet, it was his duty to father as many children as possible to continue the lineage of prophets to future generations. And with that being the case, he was allowed to sleep with any woman or girl at Mount Carmel. He also preached that all other males at Mount Carmel should practice celibacy, even if they were married, making him the only man who was allowed to be sexually active. Over the next several years, he would father 17 children, two of which who were born to underage girls. Although he was pretty strict with his followers in some ways, Koresh did allow for some alcohol consumption, but was strongly against illicit drug use. Throughout Koresh's time as leader, one thing never changed. Followers were allowed to come and go from the compound as they pleased. No one was forced to be there. They could even leave the faith if that's what they decided. No one was forcing the adult members to be Branch Davidians. Of course, you also have to understand that some of the women now had children by David Koresh, so it's not exactly cut and dry, but there was no uh, violence or anything like that keeping members at the center. Their day-to-day lives were pretty normal. You know, they even, a lot of them even went to work outside of the compound and then they would come together in the evenings for Bible study or prayer groups. So now that Koresh had secured his role as leader of the Branch Davidians, he needed a way to bring money into the church. And he found that buying and selling guns was a very easy way to do that. Koresh and his followers would frequently buy and sell guns and ammunition at gun shows. Koresh was also a strong believer in the right to bear arms, and he also thought that an arsenal would be necessary when the apocalypse inevitably started. The Branch Davidians even had a shooting range set up on the property to practice with their weapons. On July 9, 1992, A UPS driver became concerned after he delivered a box of hand grenades to Mount Carmel, and he reported the delivery to the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, also known as the ATF. The ATF opened an investigation into Mount Carmel, and they found that there had been past reports of automatic gunfire from the compound. The ATF sent two undercover agents to investigate the Branch Davidians and determined if there actually was a stockpile of guns that had been illegally converted to automatic weapons. Although the undercover agents successfully visited the compound, they were unable to find any illegal stockpiles, but they were still concerned about some of the innuendos that they overheard and kind of made them believe that the stockpile did exist. Although that's a pretty weak case, a federal judge still signed an arrest warrant for David Koresh. The ATF began to put together a plan on how to arrest Koresh and take hold of the stockpile of weapons. It wasn't going to be as easy as just walking up to the compound and knocking on the door because if there was this huge stockpile of weapons, you know, those agents would be met with uh, extreme violence and danger. 
and the ATF really wanted to minimize the chance of any sort of gunfight happening. So on February 28th, 1993, at 9.45 a.m., 75 ATF agents on the ground and in helicopters surrounded the property and began to close in. A group of agents were ordered to go to the front door while another group scaled the side of the building and would enter through windows on the roof, securing any weapons that were hidden up there. Although it is unclear to this day which side fired first, the ATF agents were met with heavy resistance from the beginning of the operation. A full-on gun battle ensued with agents and Branch Davidians alike firing through the front door and walls of the compound, which were paper thin and did little to slow the bullets. A ceasefire was called two hours after the initial siege had started, but by then, four ATF agents had already been shot and killed during that time, with 14 more being wounded. The ATF was not the only side to suffer casualties, and five Branch Davidians had also been killed during the shootout, two of which had suffered mortal wounds during the shootout and were mercifully killed by other Branch Davidians to end their suffering. David Koresh had actually been shot in the hand and the stomach during the shootout, but he survived. As a result of the deaths of these federal agents, the FBI took control of the situation. Just six months prior to this, the FBI had conducted a raid on a family compound in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, which had resulted in an 11-day standoff. At Ruby Ridge, the FBI was attempting to arrest Randy Weaver, who had failed to show up on his court date for a gun charge. Over the course of several days, an ATF agent shot and killed a male teenager, and a separate FBI sniper shot and killed an unarmed mother who was holding an infant. A U.S. Marshal was also shot and killed by a family friend of Randy Weaver, who was also at Ruby Ridge. The situation was ultimately resolved when the FBI's hostage rescue team negotiated a surrender, but not before dozens of protesters had gathered, calling for the family to be left alone. Ultimately, Randy Weaver was only charged with the original gun charge and spent just 16 months in prison. Ruby Ridge was a huge black mark on the FBI's record, and it was widely believed that they used too much force against U.S. citizens over something as small as a missed court date. Now in Waco, the FBI saw this as an opportunity to fix their tarnished record and redeem themselves as a federal agency that could be trusted by citizens. Determined not to have another Ruby Ridge on their hands, the FBI decided to take a different approach with the Branch Davidians. Instead of relying on heavy artillery and military weapons, they attempted to negotiate with the Branch Davidians, hoping that the situation would end without any further injuries or deaths on either side. Early on in negotiations, things seemed to be going somewhat well. Koresh agreed to surrender if he could have a recording played on a national radio broadcast. The FBI agreed to this demand, but after playing the broadcast, Koresh still refused to surrender and stated that he needed to finish his writings before surrendering. But progress was still being made, and after a few days, 19 children left the compound. 
These children were subsequently interviewed by the FBI, and according to an FBI report released after the siege had ended, many of the children who were interviewed confessed that they had been sexually and physically abused at Mount Carmel by Koresh. Now, again, this report was released after the end of the siege, so take it all with a grain of salt. But 98 people, including 14 children, remained inside Mount Carmel. Most of the children that were still there were Koresh's, whom he refused to let leave. As the days wore on, the FBI started using alternative tactics in an effort to get the Branch Davidians to surrender. They blasted bright lights into the windows of the compound at night and blared loud music so it would be almost impossible for the Branch Davidians to sleep. They cut off their electricity, their food, and their water supplies, so the Branch Davidians had to rely on what they had stockpiled, which was basically just military rations and some food delivered by the FBI for the children. As time went on, 11 more people left the compound and all were immediately arrested. More than a month passed since the original siege attempt and the FBI was spending around a million dollars every week on the operation. Janet Reno, who had recently been appointed as U.S. Attorney General, was briefed by FBI leaders and told about the child abuse that was possibly still happening within Mount Carmel. Believing that the child abuse was still happening and that children were in real and imminent danger, Reno approved a military-grade assault on Mount Carmel. In the early morning hours of April 19, 1993, 51 days after the original siege attempt, huge military vehicles began to clear cars and demolish smaller buildings from the compound. With military helicopters overhead, the armored vehicles then made their way to the main Mount Carmel building and began punching holes in the side of the building. Through the holes, canisters of tear gas were fired in an attempt to get the Branch Davidians to leave. Instead, most of the remaining members, including all of the remaining children, holed up in a concrete bunker under the compound. Almost simultaneously, three fires broke out on the compound, and within minutes, the entire building was ablaze. Nine Branch Davidians, all adults, managed to make it out of the building after the fire started. Now, there is still heated debate over how the fire started, with some people believing that the Branch Davidians started them on purpose, while others speculating that the gunfire ignited the tear gas which had been pumped into the compound. Whatever the reason, when the fire crews attempted to make their way to the compound to fight the blaze, they were stopped and they were not allowed to enter the compound area until 30 minutes after the fire first was seen, by which time the entire building was engulfed in flames. By 12.55 p.m., the blaze began to let up, but the building had completely collapsed at that point. In total, 76 people died in the siege and the fire on April 19th. David Koresh's body was discovered with a devout follower of his named Steve Schneider, and it was concluded by the FBI that Schneider shot Koresh and then himself. Dozens of bodies were found in a semi-collapsed concrete bunker underneath the building. 
Many died from the structural collapse, but autopsies revealed that some of the children had died from cyanide poisoning, which is what tear gas turns into when it burns. Others were found with gunshot wounds, and a three-year-old was even found to have been stabbed in the chest. Many of the others were determined to have died from smoke inhalation. It's believed that after the partial collapse of the building, there was no way out of the bunker and that several adults started killing the children so they would no longer have to suffer from the smoke and the cyanide in the air. In the years and months that followed, the FBI pushed a narrative to the public that the Branch Davidians were a dangerous, heavily armed cult led by a child abuser, and there's enough evidence to back up at least most of that. By all means, David Koresh should not have been permitted to continue raping young girls and abusing children. But in this case, serious missteps by the U.S. government directly led to the death of dozens of people, including the very children that they were supposed to be saving from Koresh. Today, part of the Mount Carmel site has been turned into a memorial for the lives lost during the siege. Two walls of stone have the names of the Branch Davidians etched into them, while a smaller stone between them has the name of the ATF agents who lost their lives as well. The site is still managed by supporters of the Branch Davidians, and as of the taping of this episode, the gates to the site are open on Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. If you have visited or plan to visit, please let me know. I would love to hear about your experience. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you could visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, the series Waco, and the book The Waco Siege, an American Tragedy by Jack Rosewood and Dwayne Walker. <laughs>